0: When I, when we all witnessed that slow, torturous, nine-minute murder of a man, I think not only is something inside of me broke, but something inside of everybody in this nation broke. I just went through an array of feelings, because I was mad as well, too, and then I had many people reaching out to me who were very upset. So that's why I decided, like, okay, how can I channel and harness my energy into a more positive way, into... Make change and get people to follow behind me, and that's where we come to the protest that I had, where 10 and 15 thousand people following, which we started off small with Royce and myself and a couple other athletes, we wanted to use our voices and our platform to speak for the unheard people of the community, and which ended up really big. And so I had an array of feelings, and now I'm to the point of, how do we really change, and and what what does reform really look like?
1: Thank you for being on uh, Conversations with Shonda. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A podcast that we started at the Minneapolis Foundation and um, something that's really true to the essence of who I am. And I think the foundation of operating with some curiosity, Mm -hmm. interested in examining issues from multiple points of view. And so um, you were for sure someone that we wanted to hear from and kind of get get your perspective on what's happening in our city and where the opportunities might be. Right. Um, so thank you for joining, joining me.
0: Yes. No, thank you. It's such an honor to be on this podcast <laughs> here with you. Uh, I've seen it a lot of, as you know, we kind of share like some of the same passion. So I follow your work a lot. You are further down the road than I am. So I, I am just following in your trail.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Age will do that, right? Yeah, (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's a good thing. You have wisdom.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to feel it. But, you know, PJ, before we jump in um, for for our listeners, will you um, just give a bit of an intro to who you are? Uh, Yeah, I can give a
0: quick uh, background on myself. So I was born and raised in Minneapolis. I graduated from uh, North High, Polars, Woo-Woo. Then, mm-hmm. I to, uh, <laughs> then I went to. Then I went to Ohio State University. I played basketball there. Uh, was fortunate to have that opportunity. Won a Big Ten championship. Then after that, I played uh, professional for almost a decade. So professional basketball, which was an amazing experience. I got to travel the world, live out my dreams, and then I transitioned um, after I retired into wealth management. And I've been doing that now three years. So mm-hmm. that brings me to where I am today. I'm. Come from a big family, one of eight kids. My little sister's in the WNBA. So big basketball family, big in the community for Shout many out to years. Taylor. Yes, Taylor Hill. She is a beast.
1: She <laughs> is a beast. You know, I um I come from a big extended family and I have um five five kids. Yeah. 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 And there's something about like, I mean, I think the consistencies in our stories of being from here. Mm-hmm. I'm a polar. Woo woo woo.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know, I mean, you know, our families, our families go back and have been connected in, in various ways, and I think we still mm-hmm. will discover um through through our relationship. But you know, what for you as a as a young um, person growing up in this community did it mean for you to have a family that was um, connected to this place and evolved and known for even if it was. It was basketball, right? It was a full family affair. What what how did how do you think that's influenced you?
0: Um, that has influenced me a lot, you know, from starting with my dad, my uncle, they know everybody. So now when I when I grow up in the city, it's like I always say I'm a product of my environment. I'm a product of a lot of people caring about me, pouring into me and the best of the community. That's all I say. Like I'm a true reflection of Minneapolis and the best parts of it not sometimes a little bad stuff but mostly all good yeah but you know when you speak of people like uh who influenced me like coach Brett McNeil I got my um you know Tony Adams who was my youth coach Charles Rucker like all the people in the community who have done some have really poured into me and I and I, I take that to heart so now I feel like, you know, I'm standing on the backs of the greatest generation that came before me, your generation, and how you guys made a lot of sacrifices, broke a lot of barriers down for us. And so it's our generation's legacy, I feel like it's mine, to really move the ball forward and kick Mm -hmm. it out the park. So we can, that's going to be our legacy as a generation. That's what I feel like I'm taking on. So, you know, I want to really be able to do that and leave my mark Make yeah. sure my kids and our kids have a, a better place. Move That's all right. of humanity forward.
1: Yeah. And when you talked about, you said Tone Adams, right? Yeah. So Tone, right? Our, our neighborhood <laughs> police officer, right? That yeah. we all love and adore. Policing right now is so complicated, but can you talk about um, the importance of that relationship and what it meant to you, even knowing he was a police officer?
0: Yeah, it actually, uh, you know, meant the world for me. When I do police, and this is one thing, I think, you know, where we have to evolve is having more positive interaction with the police. Our youth need to have more positive interaction with law enforcement. At a young age, because I played for the police athletically, I viewed cops as these are the members of the community, the elders, and they are here to teach discipline, teach uh, life lessons like working hard. So I always viewed them as role models, role models, and When I see them at games or I see like um, Officer uh, Adams, OA, the younger one, at uh, the North Games and coaching, I look at it as us protecting us, not police. And so I think I have a a totally different view. And I wish a lot of other kids and youth or even people my age would have that view, that it's the community, police in the community. Obviously, that there is some, you know, some bad cops, but it's not all. It's not Not all. all. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, obviously grew up around all of them, and uh, RT actually had just asked me a question in an interview that we did together on what was your first experience with police? And I'm like, actually, my first policing experiences were with cops that were in our schools, and yeah. they also lived in our neighborhoods, and so it actually wasn't negative. Right. Yeah. Right. So you know, here we are, hometown kids that grew up around um, folks. For me, that ultimately became police officers, and um, you know, black police officers primarily that influenced you in your growing up. Mm-hmm. And then we encounter um, moments that we have in our city. Certainly, George Floyd is not the only one, right? Um, but it was a significant murder that has happened that really has escalated um, into so much more. Uh, mm-hmm. Opportunity, so much more understanding, so much more clarity on when those interactions with the officers are not what they ought to be. The right. destruction that can happen. And so, can you just share with us what your emotions were? What was your experience of of coming into your understanding of George Floyd's murder and what? Um, yeah, go ahead. What, I'm what, sorry. What, well, no, just what 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 did you experience when you saw that or heard that? So, currently,
0: I live two blocks away from where George Floyd was murdered. My church is right there on that corner, 38th Chicago. My pastor is my great uncle, and he's been there for 40 years. So, that is my community. And so, when, I, when we all witnessed that slow, torturous, nine-minute murder of a man, I think not only is something inside of me broke but something inside of everybody in this nation bro. I don't care if you're black or white, if you're rich or poor, man, woman. We all was like, enough is enough. And that's kind of what I went through too. I, I felt anger. I felt sadness. I just went through an array of feelings. And so now as, you know, reflecting and then uh, the periods of time that you go through, I can see and I can understand that I don't condone looting because that's not how I express myself. But I can see when they say uproar uh, looting is the voice of the unheard. Yeah. When people feel so suppressed and backed into a corner and they have no way to get out, then they, then they express themselves like that. Because I was mad as well, too. And then I had many people reaching out to me who were very upset. So that's why I decided, like, OK, how can I channel and harness my energy into a more positive way and to make change and get people to follow behind me. And that's where we come to the protest that I had with 10 and 15,000 people following, which, which started off small with Royce and myself and a couple of other athletes. We wanted to use our, our voices and our platform to speak for the unheard people of the community, and which ended up really big. And so I had an array of feelings. And now I'm to the point of how do we really change? And, and what, what does reform really look like? So I, I, I'm there now, like I was upset. I was sad and, and then I was happy when he got laid, the rest and his family got to bury him and celebrate his life. And then now I'm like on a mission of, okay, now what's the action items? How do we really change this thing and not just talk? You know, a lot of people have been saying, because if you look at us, I don't want to call us like the token black people, but if you, the world moves amongst friends, a lot of white people in corporate America, we're their friends. Yeah. We represent the whole community. So they're comfortable to be able to speak around us and talk. But I think it's our job, too, to educate them and kind of hold them accountable and say, okay, how do you take them next steps and really impact the community?
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, as I'm listening, I can't help but um, think about, so, you know, you've worked, you've worked with my youngest son, Jalen, yeah. on the court. And, um, you know, and as he grows up, Um, I can envision him talking about the folks that impacted his life and influenced his life and you become the Tony Adams in his world. And so, yeah, and you know, and, and, you know, raising sons, I definitely will never know what it means to be a black male, but I have been really struck by you guys are coming, you guys are coming into, or you are a generation of black, men and and young men that have seen the repeated murder of your peers on social media, and I just don't know what that does to one psyche mm. you think about it that way, or is that is that just the mom and me no, I mean that's
0: it. I mean, I follow Sean King, and everybody knows he's one of the biggest activists. I actually sometimes can't look at his page because i get so mad what social media has brought to it i think people have always oppressed us as african americans and there has always been police police brutality but now it's just caught on film yeah so now it's it's shedding light to a lot of people's behavior and i think now repeatedly repeatedly what 150 murders that where nobody was charged i think we're all sick of it I mean, I got a question for you. How do you feel as a mom raising young black men in this society? Yeah. Because I can only feel I don't have no I don't have a son. I got a daughter. So how, how does that feel? That's my question to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. I think, um, you know, honestly, PJ, there's days where I have to edit down my concerns. Right. Mm. I mean, that's the best way I can just you know, to talk about it is like I have to edit it down. Because if I live in the what ifs, it actually feels paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an incident like uh, Philando Castile or some of the other ones that we have seen is that there's no amount of parenting that would have prohibited that from happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, you talked about your great uncle's church. I mean, faith plays a big role in how you manage through it? I try to check in on the young men um, in my life, not just my sons. But you know, when you come from big families and they're sports guys, you end mm-hmm. up with a whole lot of other young people. Yeah, you. for like, sure, for you, sure. You you collect kids along the way, and I think you know making sure that they have the right people around them so that they have the opportunity to talk through. What their life experiences is important. You know, you mentioned uh, Royce White, you know, he's certainly a leader and has come out on other issues of importance. I think, you know, knowing that you all are out there showing leadership and in a way that's relatable, I think actually is is kind of a, you know, a comfort to, to us moms that we don't have to hold that off. That, you know, as you talked about, there's a whole community that will come around and make sure that our young people are okay.
0: And I had to
1: depend on that community quite a bit.
0: For sure. No, and and I want to touch on something that you said. And this is a reason why I moved back into the inner city because I was living in the suburbs. When I grew up, I think us athletes, we're kind of in a shelter because we we are viewed as society as maybe not all the way in the hood, you know, or not all the way black we got because we got fame, we got a little bit of money that we're viewed in a different light. And that is true. And when I was growing up, I never seen nobody who looked like me who was successful, who was like a businessman or a financial advisor or a doctor or a lawyer. Then people didn't live in my community. So all I, I always knew that I could be an athlete or an entertainer. So I want to show our young you know, generation that you can be successful and black and not just be an entertainer. And I think that's important. And to not only be able to show them that, but to, you know, be there on them front lines. That's why I think it's so important that I use my voice to speak out. Yeah, I am an athlete. Yeah, I do work in corporate America. But I'm not going to let that hinder me from standing up for what's right. And I think the kids need to see that. It should, you should never have to be silenced for speaking up for what's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after um, George Floyd's uh, murder, you, you basically got to an enough is enough point and you decided mm-hmm. to do something about it. Did you, did you envision what unfolded in your mind or did you just get out there and take the first step?
0: I just got out there. I didn't know. My life, Sandra, has changed so much. I've been on BBC, CNN, 60 Minutes, Everything. I never wanted to be, like, uh, coin myself as an activist or a, a leader of many people. All I was is a leader in the community, a member of the community who cared. So I said, I need to take action, whether it's just being there to comfort people, being on the front line, being there to even pick up trash and be there. I just wanted to be there. My gifts for people and inspiring and helping has thrusted me to the front. What does it say in the Bible? Many other the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose will prevail. So that's what has happened for me. I have a gift for people, for speaking, for inspiring. And I'm art- I can articulate what people feel into words. So that's how I came in front. And, you know, now I'm like leading a charge, connecting people, being a resource to so many people and being a light. And that's all I want to do to help move the ball forward.
1: Mm-hmm. And what what have you learned about yourself through this?
0: Um, I learned uh, plenty of things about myself. I learned that I care a whole bunch, even to the fact that I will lose balance in my life so that I can move humanity forward, which is not always the best thing because I, you know you got to find balance. I still got a family too. I find myself working all throughout the night for what they say the cause, but you got to find balance. And then I, I find that you know my gift of people is actually way better and way more magnified in these adverse times and people really find their gifts so that's what I found and I think like okay financial advising has been an amazing job for me but even more is being a community leader so now I got a question for you you know I see what you do at the Minneapolis Foundation and connecting the community and being able to bring resources and speak on that platform you know me thinking about, okay, what's next after my life has changed in this last month? Maybe there is a spot for me maybe in diversity and inclusion or in the, the philanthropy world to be able to connect the money and the resources to the people in the community who need it. You know? mm-hmm. So if I'm following in a path like you, you know, what do you suggest to a person like me? Can you share your story? And how can that help me Like if I decide to pursue this as a real career?
1: yeah you know I mean, so everyone has their path, right, and yeah, um, you know the one thing, and you know I'm happy to to share my story, you know, I always wanted to be in philanthropy. I've led a non nonprofit I was a CEO of it, I worked in it, mm-hmm. um I started you know with the in home daycare when my oldest was young because i I wanted to take <laughs> care of my own baby, so I yeah have some other people's babies and made it work um <laughs> And so, you know, I've gone through my scrappy times and I've ran youth programs and I came up through it. And I think each step. Right. And I think that's what, you know, and and we uncover and what we um, understand from a faith perspective is that the doors will open that are supposed to open. Mm -hmm. And if you're in tune with it and the message that is being provided, you'll step into that door. So I think that there's been um, doors that have opened that have felt right. Um, what I have gotten clear on is that I'm, a, a change agent from within institutions. Mm. And that requires a lot more patience. It requires more editing. Mm-hmm. It requires, um, more patience. Mm-hmm. You know, it requires a lot of things that are, uh, you know, it requires more considerations than if you're pushing from the outside. Right. And I think both roles are extremely important. You know, what I would say to you is, you know, as you are getting clear on your role, your purpose, your opportunity, really understanding whether or not, because clearly you can make a change and and be a financial advisor. Right, right. Right. Um, You know, I think part of what I hear you talking about is the balance. Like it's difficult to to do both. Right. Uh, But financial advising is a critical role that we depend on at the foundation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That helps us um, bring not just resources into the community, but it allows for us to be in relationship with people that are curious on issues that they're less familiar with. So it allows us to be in relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, it is slow and it is intentional and it is deliberate, but it is very beneficial. So what I would say is the more you um, kind of develop into those roles, the more the doors open. And when right, right. a door is offered and you're like, you know what? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. Whether or not it's in the AI yep. space or whether or not it's in philanthropy or whether or not it's in activism or whatever. And, you know, I believe in a little bit of hybrid, right? A hybrid. Mm-hmm. Like you can be a little bit of all of that because you have an opportunity to create to create your life and your impact.
0: Mm-hmm. I really like that. No, no, you, pow, that was an amazing answer. And, and that's what I'm going through, kind of see which lane do I want to impact most. So when you talk about, I got another question for you. What do you see philanthropy's role in his, in in the change that needs to happen?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think that, um, you know, we're sitting in a space right now where I think people are questioning that to some extent. And, mm-hmm. um... We, we understand. I understand the devastation that has happened on the Black community over centuries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, my position is: there's not a sector, there's not a person, there's not a child that can't be kind of that drum that drum major for change. Mm. That philanthropy has a role um, because we all have a role, and that. You know, if my role in philanthropy, number one, is to enable other people to be successful in their efforts, right, that we do that through investment, financial Mm -hmm. investment, Um, that uh, philanthropy holds a place, right? It's a privileged sector. It's a privileged place to sit. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result of it, you have relationships that are often not accessible to everyone. Right. Right. And we can leverage those relationships and those networks to benefit uh, the community, to, um, to uh, support people in their giving. Everyone that gives money towards an issue is not going to understand it as well as we do. Right. But it doesn't mean that they don't have the right, the right intention. And in the right heart. And the right heart. I think Mm -hmm. that where we're at in discovering is that it actually is never going to, money's never going to solve the issue. It's going to require leadership. It's going to require bold action. It's going to require dismantling. And which means that there's things in every sector that need to be undone, including philanthropy.
0: Right. No, I totally agree with that. And one point that you brought up that was really good is people may want to give, but don't want to be on the front line. Yeah. And I'm seeing that now. Like a lot of people have given me suggestions, but they don't want to go out in the front with me, or they're not comfortable all the way with that. Which is okay, because is I don't mind being in front, and I love their advice. I love their, you know, any any resources that they connect me with. And you feel like what I've learned in corporate America, or just even in this space that we are, a lot of people have opinions, but are not all the way comfortable yet with saying them out loud. That's but right. But in a private room. They'll sell
1: and And they'll give and they'll make things happen. Yeah, especially when it comes to things that are uh, about race. Right, right. Um, Because we're not in a lot of cross-cultural sort of, you know, conversations around it. And, you know, PJ, when you look at any sort of social movement, the civil rights movement, there were a lot of people that simply put money into the movement. So Martin Luther King and others could go forward and, and move around the country, right? There were people that allowed, you know, churches that allowed people to meet. There were white allies that allowed for people to come into their homes. Mm -hmm. There were white allies that participated in the Montgomery uh, boycott. Um, You know, there is room here. And I think the danger in the moment is that, um, you know, or my hope in the moment is that we don't become fragmented, but that we all stay focused on figuring out how do we increase uh, accountability in policing, you know, and eliminate, hopefully, um, the unjustified murder of brown and black men and women. Yeah,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I totally agree.
1: Yeah, PJ, so you had the, the rally. You had 10, 15,000 people show up. I've done, I've done event planning. You get there and you're like, dang, I hope someone shows up. Right. You, <laughs> you get 10, right. 15,000 people. I mean, did that surprise you? Of course, of course.
0: It started off with a couple calls. Royce called me and said, uh, PJ, you know, we're, we're, let's, let's, let's rally all the athletes, let's go and let us march. And so it was like 40 people only. And so he was like, I need you because you got a good voice, people follow you, and I said, all right. I got there, it was like 20, 30 people. After like an hour, I look up, it's like four or 5,000 people, <laughs> and then I'm like, then we start marching. We get over by the Hennepin Bridge, we have like 10 or 15,000 people. Everybody's looking to us like, all right, speak now. Then we speak and then you can feel. And I, I look at a lot of pictures. I, I do a lot of history. Like I study the history because that helps us go forward. A lot of the marches back in the day, you see a lot of black and brown faces and peppered in a few yeah. of our white allies. These marches that we have today, it's peppered in with a lot of brown and black faces and a lot of white allies and a lot of people from all different ethnic backgrounds. And that's why I believe things will be different this time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because because um, more people are getting activated, because people are understanding the issue differently. Because why do you think it'll be different? Because there's white allies that are involved. Yeah, and and I think
0: the young kids, the culture, I think social media... As a twofold, yes, it, it's bad and sometimes, but what it does has brought all of us together. So your community is the world now because yeah. of social media. You can instantly get you know, access to anybody. And I think our young kids are a good example that we are, coming, we are becoming more and more of a melting pot. And they're not standing for a lot of these injustices that, have, you know, that we have stood for for a long time. And I think, what do they say? Um, people don't change what they tolerate. I think enough uh, people have had enough. Discontent yeah. is the seed of change. And that's what it is with our young people. And, you know, I'm saying young people, like, I'm not young, I'm young too. And then we are willing to take this, this change, this movement to whatever extremes we have to. And I see people who are really upset who are not black and brown. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I, f- I feel their spirit. Like, mm-hmm. they went it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful that it's, it's welcomed. And um, I think even with uh, Reverend Al Sharpton in the memorial mm-hmm. and the eulogy talked about in his time, right, of being on the front lines during the civil rights movement and saying what's different to him now is who is showing up. Yeah. So it's a very valid point. So when you guys were on 35W and that truck came through, did you mm. see it? What was, go- what was happening then?
0: Yeah, I was right, right on the very front uh, on that side too. My life flashed before my eyes, and not only my life, but I was scared for everybody else who out there. You know, whenever you like in the front, you looked at as leadership, you're responsible for these people. You know, <laughs> even though I didn't organize the march, Royce did, and then, but I'm there, like leading and speaking, and in the front. So, I, man, my life flashed before my eyes thank God for them bikers who were ahead because they kind of blocked the path and he had to hunk at them. And it gave us all enough time to like, oh my God, a semi is coming. Yeah. And you know, people can say what they want. Yeah. He, it was a mistake. I don't know. But I know when I look in people's face, I can see intent and that's all I'm going to say. Like he wasn't trying to break, but he did stop. Nobody got hurt. Thank God for that. But what I've seen out there is the best of humanity. Because at that time when everything is going crazy, I've seen black dudes lifting up white girls, throwing them over the, the medium, trying to help them out. You know, Asian people grabbing. You just seen. it's not about your color or your race. It's about we got to survive and we got to get everybody into a safe space. Mm-hmm. And even though in that that time of, like, which could have been a horrible tragedy, you've seen the deaths of humanity. Mm. So I always go back to that, like, look at this time when it's just crazy, and everybody could fend for themselves, but you see people just out there looking out for other people. Like, the, the girl who fell down, her friend jumped in front of her. Mm. <laughs> she jumped in front of her on a Mack truck, 18-wheeler. You gotta be a hell of a friend to do that, <laughs> because... And that's what stopped him because she stepped right in front, like no problem. So that was a, uh, just an insane time. And then we had to deal with the police and get everybody off because they wanted to arrest everybody. You know, I was able to negotiate with the police and make sure, you know, thousands of us didn't get arrested. Yeah. So, you know, thank God for that. You know, it was not me, but God speaking through me and just helping me step up and to be able to uh, deal with the cop John who was the captain of that unit had compassion but that's what you get when you are used to policing the community and you have true understanding of not only the events but the community in general and people's anger then you bring that brings empathy and that brings compassion and that brings understanding and Mm -hmm. You let 3,000 people go without arresting anybody, you know? Wow.
1: As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, you talk about here comes a semi-plowing and you saw the best of humanity that wanted to make sure everybody was safe. And I couldn't help but think about just George Floyd and what we witnessed. And now are we going to make sure that everyone is safe? This is ultimately about making sure that everyone is safe. Right. That they can live their life that mm-hmm. they are not being attacked because they're black or mentally ill or, you know, whatever the circumstances are, like, you mm-hmm. know, ultimately it is about lifting up humanity and having us see right. each other and be accountable to each other.
0: For sure. This is one thing I love about sports. And I, I say this all the time. And, and Bishop T.D. Jake says this. When the playing field is level and the rules are clear, both black man and white man can succeed. That's what you get. So if we level this playing field of life and the rules are very clear, the laws to benefit everybody and not swayed one way and change, then we all can succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So on that note, we know that the playing field is not level. We know that we have some challenges and we Mm -hmm. have, um, folks across the city that I think for the most part um, believe some level of reform should happen in policing. We yeah. have some people that say we should abolish. Some people say we should defund. Do you have uh, a position on what you think should happen in policing?
0: Uh, well, number one, I want to say I'm not an expert. So all of these are just my opinions for what I see. And like I talked about, step number one, when I want to talk about reform and police is the community involvement. And how the community is police, I think is important. I do not think we should totally abolish police because when you look at Minneapolis, it's not people in Kenwood calling the police; it's people in on Broadway community, the Powderhorn community, the Phillips community who are mostly calling the police. So I, I do think there is a uh, a place for police. I I do. And I don't think that, you know, not having them is right. But how do we find that balance, you know, where we get together with, uh, you know, the, the police force and the community? And then we find that that middle ground with this is how we would want to be police. And I don't even want to say police. This is how we sh- we want you to abide to your oath of protecting and serving us and not policing us because there's a difference. Yeah. We as a community feel we're being policed. Instead instead of protected and served. And that's what, you know, I think that middle ground that we have to come to now, as far as the way there, I'm not an expert, but I just know that they, when you talk about the informal and the formal policies within policing, the culture as a whole, because anytime a culture punishes somebody for speaking up for what's right, or even they don't even speak up, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that, you know, the hiring process and vetting these cops before they ever become on the force is, you know, very important. And so I'm going to be on a a webinar next week with uh, uh, some professionals in police reform, and I'm going to just be giving my perspective from a a uh, community leader's point of view. But I think that's, like, very important. And then another thing that I think, and I don't know how to do this is being able to take these cops who want to come and join the Minneapolis police force before they ever become on the force maybe a year before they need to interact and volunteer and be integrated into the community. Mm -hmm. And what I think that brings is understanding and you don't see things so black and white. For example, if you grew up in Minneapolis below the poverty line, you will understand that after 60 days of COVID and not working, somebody goes into a store and buys some cokes and some cigarettes or like counterfeit 20, that they're not trying to kill nobody. They're a victim of all of these things that have happened. So when you approach them as an officer, I'm not saying I'm an officer, but this would be my perspective. You wouldn't think things are so black and white, like, yeah, he did steal, But you would say to him, You do this again, I am taking you to jail. But I understand the environment. So come on, man, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. But that's somebody, that's coming from my, me, Uh, a person who understands a community, who grew up in that community. So policing is totally different. And I think when you talk about how uh, people respond to that will be much different. If somebody responded to me like that, I would be like, damn, I was wrong. I need to do better and hold myself accountable. And when people start holding themselves ac- accountable, the community and the police, I think then we all move forward yeah. for the better.
1: Yeah. What do you see
0: is next for you? Um, for me, I mean, that, that's a good question. <laughs> it's almost like one day at a time because my life has totally changed. I think for me, my, my two goals, you know, uh, personal goals has always been. Now, you know, for change, I've always been leading people in the community. But how do I take that a step farther and empower more people to be leaders? And when I talk about that, number one, it is for me, education. That was a big ticket of mine out. So I think about even education around voting. I went to North. I never was taught about voting. I never was taught that. I have a mom and a dad. Most people don't who I grew up with don't have dads. I didn't learn the importance of voting. I can admit, and this is sad, but I've only voted twice for Obama. Any of the other elections? Never voted in the local elections, but I never had an understanding of how much the local elections impact my life and how the presidential elections are not you know, the, the biggest impact of my life. So how do I make voting popular for the kids? Make it a thing? Because I know with kids... If they think it's a thing, then they're with it. If yeah. everybody's doing it, I would be too. So educating them around voting and then having them use their, their power. So number one, the next thing for me is uh, the voter registration event, block party. So not like a rally or an event. This is a block party. Come, let's get registered to vote. Let's enjoy some good food in a safe COVID environment where we have good space but, in a big space, and then let's support some of our local black businesses, our local vendors and I think that's what's next and If we kind of shift that, it's a way for all of us to connect with the 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 youth, especially when we talk about from eighteen to thirty, and get them going so that's that's my next thing and yeah from there i'm I'm day by day, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, voting is underestimated, and we have you know not only are we not necessarily taught about that in urban environments, we don't leverage our network to the extent that we should, you know right. we don't know who's informing. and And part of what I'm hearing from you as I'm listening is that and and you may have even said it earlier is that it's not enough just to go out and protest. It's not enough just to declare that you're angry at something. You have to you have to move that into action. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, continue to stay with the issue. You have to put your your frustration to vote Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that we have people in office, not just at the national um, level, but at the local level. um, We need to make sure that we're engaging. And that part Mm -hmm. of teaching the next generation and building the next generation of leaders is to make sure that they understand how to be civically engaged.
0: Right. I love how you put that. I love that. That that That's exactly what I want to do. The protests and all of the stuff that happened is a part of our chess move. But as you start to talk about now, we go from protesting to true reform. And what does that look like uh, most? So if there's two buckets. Number one, rebuilding our community and the other bucket, which would be more short term. Like, what do we do with our kids now that they've been? out of school for 70 days and then now they're in the summertime and COVID. And then the next thing is, um, the, the police reform. So you're exactly right. How can we take actionable steps that really have an impact? So, you know, that's where we are. We are in phase two. of let's get people registered to vote. Now that's, it's not enough to get people registered to vote. How Mm -hmm. do we like teach people about, you know, the impact of their vote and who to vote for and what issues to look for. Because I'm going to say, look, not all black people are Democrats. Not all black people are are not all white people are Republicans. It's finding what issues resonate with you and your family and then voting according to that. So that's why in these events, I want to be nonpartisan. I just purely want to focus on the educational piece and empowering each individual.
1: Yeah. Do you, um, I don't even know, I mean, I guess my question is about a comment that you made around the truck coming down um, the freeway, and you said that you felt the weight, and I think that as you um, take on bigger things, right, I, I, you know, I used to be the CEO of an organization, and, you know, you can have one person make a stupid decision that you've met. You know, once yeah. or twice in your organization and they do something and you, you are responsible for it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, are you, are you feeling comfortable with the weight that you're feeling right now? And, and what are ways that people might be able to help you? Right? Um, yeah, I'm definitely comfortable with my role
0: because, as you know, when God blesses you to be able to do something, you have the vigor to be able to do it. And so people say, dang, you don't look like you're sleeping, you're going. Well, that's because God has blessed me to do this. This is my gift. Um, where I do, you know, now where I need, you know, help, like, you know, but like I reached out to you and, and these other organizations, I have the gift, I have the vision, I have the voice, but you need infrastructure. You need people around you who have been doing this a long time, who know how to turn your vision and your goals and your how you see your people into reality. So I come to you, uh, Shonda, and I say, I need help, you know, maybe event planning for this, or I need a fiscal agent. I need all these things that I never thought about. And you say, okay, PJ, I can help you with that. I need people around who not only have experience, but who have resources. And all together, when you start to build this team and we all move the right way, then I think all of that is inclusive of change. And that's how we can get it done. So, yeah, I need people with expertise in these different fields. I need people who have, you know, resources that I may not always be able to get to. But just know whether you're visible or not, you are making a difference. Right. If you right. invest in me and then this change that, you know, that we all need, because I'm trying to move the ball forward for all of you. Mm-hmm.
1: And if people wanted to learn more about about your work or wanted to find ways to support you, where would they go? Um,
0: okay, right now I don't have like no whole like, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> you know, Shout no, out your Twitter handle. yeah, so you know, you can go to my my Instagram, that's like where I do a lot of stuff. Okay, let me pull it up because I, I just recently my name is okay. So if you type in Mr. M R dot simply P, so S I M P L Y P, and then you'll see a picture of me in the blue suit with the red tie, but. PJ Hill. That's what, that's my name. And um, so that's where I've been doing a lot of stuff. I do need to get more formal. And and that's what I'm talking about. You know, I'm learning as I go. I'm learning and I'm connecting with people like yourself, with people like uh, Andy Luger, with uh, a lot of other people who are very powerful and been fighting this fight long before I have, but who don't mind saying you're the young generation, you get out there and run. And we'll have your back.
1: Mm -hmm. And look, PJ, like, look, I'm all about the informal, right? The way that you connect, like, and sometimes Mm -hmm. you can be in a leadership role and uh, it requires a formal way of of getting in touch with you. And there is something about using social media and Instagram because you are speaking to a broader audience, a younger audience, someone that appreciates Instagram more than they do an email. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We can, mm-hmm. we can maybe draw some of us older folks over there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> check out what you're
1: doing and see how yeah. it
0: gets done. I yeah. appreciate that. I appreciate that. I do need to get more formal, but for now, like you said, I'm just real grassroots, as we call yeah. it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So as we close, you know, I have to talk about, since we're talking about generations, so you're out here. Um, with your own voice and your own vision. And, um, you know, you asked me what it felt like to uh, parent young men. Damn, I guess yeah. so I'm going to ask you, what does it feel like uh, to be um, a legacy of your family in this moment?
0: Uh, it actually feels amazing. I have so many people. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. I have so many people, you know, from my family and then friends of the family who just call me and say that they're proud of me. And you never know who's watching, but everybody is watching. Even people you don't even know. It's people that I've never met that come up to me and say, "Are you PJ from this and this?" I have um, you know people coming up to me who you know that I that know my mom and dad, and they say, "Are you you know Are you Paul's son?" Or, uh, I seen you on TV. I am so proud of you. So it's such an honor to be able to not only represent my family, but represent. North and South Minneapolis in such a way, and to, to be seen as the next leader, because I don't take it lightly. Obviously, you always want to live up to the standards of everybody else, but number one, I'm going to live for God, then live for my wife and my daughter, and then my community, and then, you know, my, it expands from there, my city. And just to be able to make so many people proud and doing the right thing, that's an honor to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's an honor for me as well. I think that what, what I have learned is, is what you said is very true, is that there are always people paying attention
0: mm-hmm.
1: and holding that um, in a responsible way is extremely important.
0: Yeah.
1: And I love what's happening right now with the leadership from the ground, um, because I know that it's not just about what you're saying, it's about who's watching you. Right. Right. It's about who you're motivating, who you're inspiring, who you're connecting with. And that the legacy of leadership that has happened, that has been homegrown will continue. So thank you for being part of that that legacy.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Your son is next. Yes, yes, yes.
1: (laughs) I got my my little grandbaby just walked in the room. She's tiptoeing. Here she comes. Hey, hello, grandbaby. (laughs) Might as well come now. (laughs) Hey,
0: oh, you got it. I love your hair. Got you a nice rap, girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, yeah, that's Dominique's daughter. Um, yeah, you're yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so um, anything that I didn't ask you before we wrapped that you would want to
0: um, speak to? Um, no, I think that's everything. Uh, such an honor to be on here with you. It's like I know you, but I, this is like my first time formally being able to talk to you. Yeah, so like you talk about the community is so small. You know, my mom and dad, that was the first thing. I was training your son, didn't even know it. I would tell him, come hop in the drills. So the world works in the right way,
1: you know. It does work in the right way. So as you are, um, you know, forging your way forward um, based on the plan that was designed for you,
0: Mm -hmm. know
1: that um, everyone that should be there will be there. And the obstacles you encounter are there for a reason.
0: Yeah, to it's grow just
1: as necessary as yeah. all of the opportunities. And so here we are at a point in time in our history where there'll be a lot of different makers, difference makers if, if we choose it. And I hope that yeah. uh, folks that are listening are, are choosing it. I think you made a great point. Not everyone's going to be visible, but everyone is needed. Right,
0: right. And this is my call to action to everybody listening. Just do the next right
1: thing and you'll be all right. That's a good place to end. Just do the next right thing. All right. Well, thank you, sir, a lot. Yes, no, thank you. To listen to more episodes and learn
0: about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak-Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.